Okay, well now here's uh, today's scripture reading, uh, and then after that I'll be back for today's teaching. All right, today God speaks to us from Acts 11, 19 through 27, and 13, 1 through 3. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Theonosia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and, great, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they, went, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menahim, and had been brought up with Herod and Tarak. And Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so the Christian church is the most stunningly diverse entity uh, that the world has, uh, that's ever existed in the history of the world. I know that for some that might sound uh, like hyperbole or an exaggeration from a Christian preacher, but I assure you it's not an exaggeration. Uh, unlike every other world religion or philosophy, which is almost always rooted in particular regions of the world or in specific cultural expressions, Christianity has no region of the world, no cultural expression that's required of its adherence. And contra contrary to popular belief, uh, Christianity is not, nor has it ever been, a Western religion. And today in our passage, uh, it, this uh, story that we just heard read shows the extent to which that's actually true. Now today we're going to be continuing our series, uh, Extraordinary Through the Ordinary, by looking at how God used ordinary people to create the most diverse group of people to ever exist, uh, and how he has sustained that diversity uh, ever since. And ultimately, what we're driving toward is how that diversity, this diverse community, is actually incredibly life-giving. And so I want to look at that by uh, looking at three things. One, I want to take a look at the roots of diversity, the growth of diversity, and then the life in diversity. Okay, so first, the roots of diversity. Uh, in our passage, we essentially are reading about the church in Antioch. Uh, this church existed in what is now the region of Turkey, Syria, that area. 
This church in Antioch is one of the most important churches in the early church uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, From here, the first missionary journey to the Gentiles would be launched. Uh, The leaders uh, of this church would ordain uh, Paul and Barnabas to go on to that mission. Uh, There is a lot that could be said about the importance of that mission, but the one dynamic of Antioch uh, that I want to focus on, again, is the diversity that we see here. Uh, As we've seen, the church started amongst the people of Israel, then expanded out to the Samaritans. Eventually, the gospel message would come to this man Cornelius, uh, a Roman Gentile who believed in the God of Israel. We looked at his story last week. Uh, Another uh, story that we didn't get a chance to focus on, there's so much that happens in Acts, but back in chapter 8, there was an Ethiopian finance minister uh, who also had come to faith, Uh, And what's interesting about all these people that at this point have come to faith is that everyone up until now has had some kind of belief in the Hebrew Scriptures. I mean, even the, um, uh, the Ethiopian, if you remember, the reason why he came to faith is because he was reading Isaiah 53, and Philip came along and helped him understand that the passage he was reading was actually speaking about Jesus. Everyone up until this point has had some relationship to the Hebrew Scriptures, But here, here's what's interesting. Now, as we see in verse uh, 20, the church that's now in Antioch is now amongst the Hellenists or the Greek pagans of the day. And the Greek pagans had zero interest in the God of Israel. And yet here you have a thriving church. The message of Christ, which is certainly rooted in God's revelation to Israel, is beginning to transcend these cultural boundaries in a new kind of way. In uh, one, no longer needed any kind of previous knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures to trust in Jesus because the message of Jesus, though rooted in those Hebrew Scriptures, transcends the cultural and ethnic features of the Hebrews. This is important. I'm harping on this uh, because it matters in the grand scheme of many other world competing, uh, competing world religions. I mean, please understand that this is an incredibly unique reality in the Christian faith. I mean, consider just the other major world religions of, of today. For example, true Islam and the true word of Allah requires a knowledge of Arabic. It requires daily prayers that are prayed toward Mecca and pilgr- pilgrimages that are required to Mecca. The religion has always been deeply rooted in a particular cultural expression Another example is currently 99% of all Hindus and Buddhists reside in the exact place of its origin, Asia Pacific. And where those faiths exist outside of that region, the faith is deeply rooted in Eastern culture. I mean, even secularism and humanism, who many would argue is a new kind of religion, are deeply Western in their thinking. I mean, so much more could be said about this, but for now it's important just to know that Christianity breaks free from so many of these cultural constraints. And we're starting to see that already here in our passage. Now, since the the church here in Antioch is growing, the leaders in Jerusalem decide to send Barnabas to the church. uh, And Barnabas brings Saul, also known as Paul, along with him in order to help the growing congregation there thrive even more. And then what we see, if you fast forward to chapter 13, which I I put the first few verses there, 
Uh, this shows what the church actually looked like. Right? So we hear about the church, we see the sending of the leaders, now we take a look at who was actually leading in that church. And this is what I want us to do. I want you to consider the diversity that we maybe could have missed by just a very quick reading of that passage. Right? Consider who these leaders are. First, we know that Paul and Barnabas are there. Right? They were obviously leaders, they were sent there. Now, both of them were ethnically and culturally Jewish, so that's important just to note. But in addition, as we've said over the last several weeks, Paul also had the added dynamic of being this highly educated Roman citizen. Uh, but then the author, Luke, notes uh, another man named Manian. Now, we don't know much about him, but we do know that according to 13.1, he was a lifelong friend of Herod, which at minimum meant that he was likely upper class and wealthy. Then at the end of uh, chapter 12, it also uh, tells us, I don't have that in the reading, but what we're told at the very end of that chapter is that Paul and Barnabas also brought Mark with them. So we know that Mark, whose name is on the Gospel of Mark, we know that he was Liber uh, from Liberia in North Africa, important to note. And then look at the rest of the leaders here. You have um, Simon, who is also called Niger. Now Niger means uh, black or dark in Latin, which means that Simon was likely a dark-skinned African. Then you have Lucius of Cyrene, also North African. Now I'll explain in a minute why that's interesting, but it's, it's striking to me that half of this group that's here are African. Now we can't miss how incredibly diverse this group is, even beyond just their places of origin. The church that's being established here the church that would send off this mission to the Gentiles was incredibly racially, culturally, socially diverse. In fact, for the first time, there was a religion that did not neatly fit into any particular ethnic or racial or socioeconomic category. And so people didn't know what to call this new, unique group of people. And verse 26 tells us, that because they didn't have anything else to call them, it says that the disciples were called Christians for the first time at Antioch. Why? Because they had to be called something. And there was no easy category to be placed on them because they were so different. The only thing that they had in common was Jesus. I mean, this harkens back to what we talked about last week, that for a Christian, to be a true Christian is to primarily identify oneself with Jesus above everything else. And that's what we see here. These people had not much in common at all except Jesus. And so now this new title comes, Christians. So it's here that we see these roots of diversity. But what's interesting is that this diversity then would expand far beyond just Antioch, which is why it's also important for us to see the growth of the diversity. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a little disclaimer. For the next few minutes, I'm going to go on what might seem like a serious detour. I promise it makes sense, and I will come back to the church in Antioch, but we're going to take a little bit of a detour uh, because our Western American church needs to consider some very important aspects of what we're reading about here in Antioch. Because Western Christians especially American Christians, have a really unique relationship to Africa. And what I mean by that is, of course, Western Christians have a unique relationship because of imperialism and colonialism. 
American Christians in particular have a unique relationship because of the shadow slavery uh, of Africans. And so as a result, that unique relationship, because of that unique relationship, I don't think that we can just rush past the significance of what we're seeing here in our passage and how important Africa was in shaping the foundational leaders of the church. And I draw this out because there are some, even many in our own neighborhood, who are actively critical of the Christian faith because they claim that Christianity is a white man's religion, it's a slaveholder religion, it's an imperialistic religion used to justify the subjugation of the globe. And I think it's fair to say that if you know me, you know that I will be the first to denounce and reject imperialistically white supremacist Christianity that continues to infect the church. It's been a disease in the West. I've spent uh, much of my ministry and my educational research in trying to articulate ways of rejecting the perversion of that kind of Christianity. But do you know why myself and many others, even right now, spend time rejecting the white normativity of Christianity? Well, it's precisely because of what Christianity claims, that it is not rooted in any one particular culture. It is not some imperialistic um, religion that seeks to just take over the globe, but rather Christianity in its truest form is free from all of those. And so again, given our history with Africa, I want to use it as a bit of a case study to show the extent to which Christianity is for all people and specifically speak to those who assume that Christianity is a white religion. All right, so let's consider this for the next few minutes. Let's consider Africa and church history. Uh, Thomas Oden, who's a a theologian and church scholar, uh, he ran a center for early African, um, a center for early African Christianity uh, for many, many years. He was prolific on this topic. Uh, One of the best and easiest reads, in case this is something you want to study later, uh, he wrote a book, How Africa Shaped the the Christian Mind. definitely recommend that book. But in reading our passage, he starts here, looking at this passage, and this is what he said. I thought it's at least worth considering. He said, ponder this as if with African eyes. All right, so consider Acts 13 and that list of of, uh, leaders. Ponder this as if with African eyes. Mark, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Simon the Black, were all together in Antioch praying and fasting and participating in the Spirit's mission to, uh, to send chosen vessels for the first missionary journey. Note that this African core of missionaries preceded Paul in gospel witness. In fact, they ordained Paul. That's what I find to be so interesting, that God, before sending out his mission to the Gentiles, God chose Africans to lead the church that would send out the mission. And then those same Africans would ordain Paul, the, great, the church's greatest missionary, into ministry. And then it didn't stop there. Right? So for the next few hundred years, we would see a, cer- a particular kind of trend continue. Many of the most influential church fathers were all African. Tertullian, one of the earliest, was the first known theologian to coin the term Trinitas, or Trinity, to explain the Godhead. He was African. Athanasius 
was a fierce defender uh, against heresy that rejected the divinity of Jesus. He also contributed much to our understanding of the canon uh, or the writings of Scripture. Again, he was African. Uh, for many of us in the Reformed world, if you, if you don't know this, uh, our church, we're a Presbyterian church, and so we hold the Reformed theology. Uh, and whenever we think about Reformed theology uh, and those who defended doctrines like predestination or something similar, we often think about Europeans like John Calvin. Except the problem with that is that Augustine was writing about such things a thousand plus years earlier. And guess what? He was African. Some claim that the church began um, as we know it after the Council of Nicaea in 325, but Odin notes this about that claim, that a century prior to the Council of Nicaea, African churches were firmly established, courageously led, actively growing, and vital worshiping communities already before that council. And he argues that other elements um, that, we, that we hold dear within the Western church tradition are actually all rooted back in Africa. For example, he notes that universities, as we know them today, all were born out of the crucible of Africa. He notes that our approach to biblical interpretation, which is often credited to other church fathers like Basil the Great or Gregory of Nyssa, who were non-Africans, in reality they were actually utilizing something that was developed by Origen many years earlier, who was an African. And then there's this rich history of growth in Africa. Uh, Ethiopian Christianity is some of the oldest Christianity in the world. And Christianity didn't just stay in the north and in the east part of Africa, but it also went west uh, Vince Bontu, who's a professor of church history and black church studies, he was also one of my professors uh, in my doctorate program, he noted some recent research that he's been doing where he translated uh, some Arabic text from the emperor Mansa Musa. Now, this, uh, Mansa Musa was the most powerful ruler of the Mali Empire in West Africa in the 1300s. A side note about him, uh, he is also noted as being the wealthiest man that's ever lived. Um, his wealth would have actually dwarfed that of even Jeff Bezos if you were to um, uh, compare the, the, their, their two levels of wealth. But Mansa Musa noted that there were Christians in his empire that were settled and thriving in the 1300s during his reign. And the reason why that matters is that Christianity was thriving in West Africa years, maybe centuries, before Europeans ever arrived. Now, all this together, right? I told you I was going to go on a bit of a random rabbit trail. But all of this together, frankly, brought me to tears this week as I think about how our Western church has just always been full of such ignorance that led many to believe that Africans were somehow inferior. I mean, what lunacy is white supremacy? Our faith as we know it is rooted in God using Africans. Our, some of the core tenets of the faith were developed and established and articulated by Africans long before Europeans ever got a hold of it. Global Christianity and especially African Christianity, is not the result of European colonialism. It's just not. I mean, consider how Laman Sane, who's a, he's a professor at Yale, 
also a native of Gambia. Uh, again, another remarkable book I would suggest is Whose Religion is Christianity? He shows how colonialism uh, was a stumbling block that once removed created enormous expansions of the faith throughout Africa in modern day. And he gives a few reasons why. Some of them I, f- I find to be very intriguing quickly. He said that when European missionaries and the colonial powers left, there was an explosion of Bible translations into African languages. So the, the nature of white supremacy was that people were required to learn European languages. In other words, they had rooted the faith in a culture, and as a result of that rooting, they stifled the growth. But when that was removed, Africans then had Scripture in their own language, and it created this explosion of the faith throughout the continent. Then, related, Asane notes that the African peoples, now as a result of colonial powers leaving, now had greater agency, and so they stepped forward as Christian leaders without the disadvantages of foreign compromise. And then finally, this one's the most striking to me, he said that Christianity thrived in places where indigenous religions had remained strong through colonialism, meaning that indigenous peoples when they actually received the gospel message for what it was, a message for God, from God, they did not hear it as a message from colonizers, but from God himself. And as a result, it exploded throughout the continent. And I'm saying that it exploded because we are on track currently for Africa to become the new center of global Christianity. I mean, in my lifetime, if I lay off the bacon, I could probably see this happen. By 2050, between 2050 and 2060, Africa will become the new global center of Christianity. Now again, why did I take this detour? Because Christ and his message cannot and will not be bound by our limited, fragile, temporal, cultural perspectives. The power of the gospel is that it transcends all cultures, all peoples, all languages. This is why Christianity is unstoppable. It's an unstoppable, incomparable movement. The diversity that we get a glimpse of here in Acts 13 has shown uh, just the extent to which that is possible. And it occurs in a way that I can't even, now, today, I, I would imagine that even our church fathers would be blown away at the kind of diversity that the global Christian church has. And of course, I draw on African history because of our unique relationship to Africa, but this can be told in a variety of different ways from different places. I mean, the Chinese church, which has experienced constant and sustained persecution, is also one of the fastest growing churches in the world. Asian Christianity has its own rich heritage distinct from Western cultural influences. Native American communities. I mean, if you're interested in in seeing what God has been doing for generations in Native communities, you can uh, read some of Mark Charles or Charles Robinson who have spent time trying to understand what God has been doing amongst Native peoples for many, many, many years. I got to spend some time uh, in Chicago with some Native American Christians, and I got to see the ways that the gospel has been interwoven into their own cultural expressions in ways that would be different to many of us, and yet that is the power of the message of Jesus. It transcends cultural categories. And I could go on and on. There's so many different ways to articulate that. And I've said this before, and I will say it again, but the sustained diversity of the Christian faith is one of the most convincing arguments to me 
about why it's actually true. If a religion is going to be true for all people at all times and all places, it better not prioritize any one particular culture or people group or time period. And Christianity at this point has proven itself to be just that, something that transcends all of that. And so this is why we should look at the diversity of the church and see life there. It's life-giving to see what God is doing amongst his people all over the world. That brings me to my final point. I want us to understand why it brings life. Why is there life-giving, why is it life-giving to see this diversity? Uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's a social uh, psychologist, comes out of the University of Pennsylvania. He now studies, or he now teaches, rather, at NYU uh, he's not a Christian, but he recently wrote a book, actually this is probably two years ago now, wrote a book called Coddling the American Mind. Uh, and in it, he and his co-author, they lament the state of many university campuses right now where students are becoming less and less able to handle a diversity of thought without getting offended by that diversity. And one of the reasons why, uh, they argue, is because of the ways that we have prized solidarity without diversity. So solidarity without diversity really just devolves into tribalism. And he puts it this way. He says that solidarity engenders trust, teamwork, and mutual aid. But it can also foster groupthink, orthodoxy, and paralyzing fear. Solidarity can interfere with a group's efforts to find the truth. And he goes on to say, however, that viewpoint diversity reduces a community's susceptibility to witch hunts. Now, let me explain to you what he's talking about there. In other words, attempts to silence differing thoughts and experiences becomes incredibly um, problematic for us. It's detrimental to us. And now, Haidt is talking about education. And again, he's not a Christian, but he is so right. And it has everything to do with what we're talking about right now. Here's what I find to be interesting, is that solidarity with others to the exclusion of diversity, will produce narrow thinking and tribalism. But diversity, to the exclusion of solidarity, doesn't produce anything life-giving, but rather it tends to alienate people from one another. But what we need, here's the point, what we need is a community in solidarity with one another, and yet is diverse enough to help one another grow. And there's a lot of wisdom there with regards to the current states of our nation, but especially there's a lot of wisdom there as it relates to the church. All of this is what produces the unmatched diversity of the church. The church of Christ ought to be the ultimate example of what height is seeking, a community of diverse solidarity. To be a Christian is to be part of that community of diverse solidarity because of a single commonality. We can be a diverse group of people from a variety of different places, different places in history, different cultures, different languages, different nations of origin, and yet still be in solidarity with one another because of the commonality of Jesus. It's Jesus that establishes this diverse solidarity, which leads to the kind of community that we need, this vast diversity of the church that helps us learn more about God 
and aspects of his character and nature. I mean, there's so much that we can learn about God through one another and through the diversity that Christ establishes in his church. I mean, think about the ways that we're a diverse people, even just within Redeemer East Harlem. I mean, at minimum, the church is made up of men and women and children of differing ages with a variety of family experiences and socioeconomic life experiences. But there's so much that we can learn from one another just by being different in those ways. I mean, men, I hope you know that there is much to learn about God from women. Youth, I hope you know that there is much to learn about God from seniors. I mean, there's so much that we can be learning from one another. Diversity with solidarity. I mean, expand this out a bit more. Do you know how much the white church can learn from the black church about God, especially as it relates to things like trusting him in the midst of turbulent seasons? Do you know how much uh, an affluent church can learn about generosity from poor and under-resourced churches? Do you know how much Western Christians can learn about evangelism from Chinese Christians in underground churches? I mean, do we know how much Presbyterians can learn from Pentecostals? I mean, the list goes on and on. There's a vast diversity. But we become one people because of the solidarity that we have around Jesus, and it's there that God is doing something amongst us, growing us, teaching us. I mean, this is a beautiful, life-giving vision of what the church is. You know, I often reference Revelation 7 and all. I'll close here. But it's one of my favorite passages of the Bible because this very point of solidarity and diversity is in beautiful, on beautiful display in Revelation 7. Uh, Revelation 7, it's describing a heavenly worship service where all of God's people are around the throne worshiping him. And I want to read to you just verses 9 and 10, give you a picture of what Christians look forward to says this, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. There's the diversity. But then it goes on to say, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's a solidarity. Diverse people all looking to the same thing. Jesus, our salvation. And this, in the end, is what we look to and long for, where Jesus gathers his church to be with him as we come together as a result of him being our salvation. And so I, I ask you, in this season... And I think it's timely again that God has brought us to certain passages in this season. I encourage you once again to remember that to be a Christian is to have more in common with other Christians who are vastly different than yourself than with non-Christians who might otherwise be similar kinds of people. Christ is what produces a solidarity. And in this coming week, in this coming months, we are going to need to constantly be reminded as we live in these deeply divided times that we are one people and that ought to then shape how we interact with others. You know, I am speaking to you now if you are a Christian and particularly if you're part of Redeemer East Harlem. We are called at this point to show to the world 
what God has established, which is a people of diversity who are also in solidarity with one another, and that ought to cause us to be a people of love, people who seek to care for others well, those who disagree with others but disagree with others in a way that reflect the fruit of the Spirit and reflect humility. These are all difficult things, and yet it's something that God calls us to do, and so I call you to that. To remember what Jesus has done in order to make you part of his people, to join this diverse community and to hold the solidarity, which is that we are all looking to the same Savior. I pray that produces a life-giving work in us, and I also pray that it shows to the world what God is doing through his people and through the work of his Son. Let's pray. Father, um, God, we thank you that we get to experience this diversity. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like maybe we are in the kind of uh, diversity that we just described, and yet we are. We are one people with Christians that have lived across generations, live across uh, cultures and nations. God, it's remarkable what you have done and what you continue to do. And Lord, I pray that it would produce in us just an overwhelming joy that we get to be part of it. And God, I pray that out of that joy is remember, we remember what Jesus has done to establish this one people, that it would also cause us to now live in response to it, live in response to that work. God, as we've prayed, would you keep us from self-righteousness or unrighteous anger or a wicked tongue or arrogance or whatever else that might uh, be easy to fall into right now, especially in these times of great division? Would you keep us from those things? And rather, would you heal your church in such a way that we proclaim to the world the goodness of the work of your Son through this diverse community pulled together in solidarity as a result of us all looking to the same Savior? God, would you do it? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.